Today's episode of The Full 60 is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1, which is, that's, now, now we're in my price range. And that's no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood list users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to full60.robinhood.com. A free stock. Just go to full60.robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Let me assure you of that. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. This week's guest is Jillian Kemmerer, and this is, I've got to say, like, and I know I'm always excited about every guest, but this was a fascinating conversation for so many reasons. For one, we did it while she was in, or currently, as I speak, is in an apartment right now in Moscow for the KHL All-Star Game. Jillian, if you don't know her or are unfamiliar with her work, she is, as described on her Twitter feed, a global hockey reporter. And so much of what she does comes from Russia in covering the KHL. And she does uh, Q&As for, the, it's called the Face-Off from the KHL's website, um, that are fascinating because they get at the personalities of some of these players that we don't always get to see that side of, that we don't always hear a lot of. Um, a lot of it is just strictly kind of hockey and what are they doing and what are their numbers in the KHL, some of these prospects or former NHL players. And what Jillian has done a great job of is is bringing that that world to us here in North America. And I was really excited when she agreed to do this while she's over there because there's there's a lot going on. And she's writing about players that fans here really care about, like wild prospect Kirill Kaprizov or Islanders goalie prospect Ilya Sorokin. Like these are these are people we don't know a ton about yet that we're going to know a lot about yet. And she's out front on all of it and, and getting at their personalities and doing a great job of it. All that in itself is interesting. And just as interesting to me is how somebody who grew up in Philly as a Flyers fan ends up be- becoming like this preeminent expert on Russian hockey in North America. I, you know me, I love that stuff. I love how do people get where they are. And Jillian was, her story is fascinating. So let's jump right into it. The Full 60 with Jillian Kemmerer. So Jillian, can you just describe exactly where you are now? And I, like, and, and I want to just start first and foremost, I am extremely jealous of you because it, based on <laughs> your Twitter feed, it's it's amazing. Oh, thank you. I am. I'm sitting in my apartment in Moscow right now. I'm actually, I really hate to rub it in, but I'm looking out over the skyline. Everything is still all lit up for Christmas. So it's like 
a wonderland. And uh, I'm here for the women's and men's all-star games. The WHL happened last weekend and the KHL is this weekend upcoming. Oh my gosh. Uh, that, that's amazing. So how long are you in total? Are you, are you going to be in Moscow? I'm here for about 10 days. I got here a little early to try and, and get acclimated and to get some interviews. And then I'll stay probably one day after the All-Stars. So it'll be a wild 10 days, but definitely a, a little bit of a longer trip than I'm used to, too, which I can't complain about. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the Christmas lights make it a spectacle. I mean, everything like the outdoor hockey, all of the stuff. I thought for a second you were like in the Himalayas at one point. <laughs> taking pictures of Slava Fistula, but that looked like those were sent to you. Those were not, you were not there, were you? I was n- I did not pop to the Himalayas and back to <laughs> Moscow. Although okay, yeah, just making I, sure. It would be nice. Oh my nice. No, Slava is, um, I, I interviewed Slava a couple months ago and I asked him and his team to just keep me updated as he travels around the world. If you want to talk to someone who's traveling like crazy, he was at Madison Square Garden this weekend. He's in the Himalayas now. Um, but he was hosting a, a game as part of his last game climate change uh, initiative with the UN up, I think, 12,000 feet in the Himalayas. So pretty hard to breathe, but they got a huge turnout for it. Women's and men's players, Indian national team. It looked like an unbelievable experience. Oh, that's crazy. So I, I'm not, uh, maybe I should know this. Can you, like, when you talk to Slava, like, what is, what's the motivation there? What's what's behind that that tour? So Slava is now a UN ambassador. He he really moved more to the political side after his hockey career. He's in the Duma as well. He was focused on sports for a while. Now he represents a specific region and and he's really embraced that role. But yeah. one issue that he's passionate about is climate change. And he's tried to figure out a way to use hockey to draw attention to regions that are going to be the most impacted by it. So he hosts outdoor hockey games mm-hmm. in parts of the world uh, where they're they're most susceptible to climate change. And the intention is to culminate this series on his birthday, playing a game uh, in the Arctic. But it's incredibly difficult logistically, as you can imagine. I think there's only a window of a couple of days where they could do it. They tried to do it um, last year and it failed. Yeah. So He's he's attempting to to use hockey as a means to just generate some education. He's hosted games in Singapore, uh, Israel. I think he's going to Monaco at some point. I forget, but now he's up in the Himalayas. So it's a pretty pretty impressive travel schedule for Slava. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay, first of I all, know. do you know when his birthday is? Because I need to be at that game in the Arctic. I'm I'm already I'm trying to figure you. out my it's, pl- it's my travel April. schedule. April? It's in April at some point. I can like look it up. But yeah, I, I think we all should have to try and, and coincide on an icebreaker out there. <laughs> that's that's crazy. April 20th. April 20th. I've got uh, it. All right. I think I'm open that week. I'll have to see if the athletic travel budget can, they, they, they have the Arctic in there. Although the Monaco game I could is a pretty good runner up. Yeah, that's not bad, is it? That's 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 not bad. Um, all right, so so are, so which all star? So you get you had two sets of all star games. Which one just you guys just went through? We just had the women's the yeah. WHL this past weekend. So how was that? And like, how is the women's hockey there in terms of popularity? I think it, you said there was three or four thousand right at the game. Yeah, yeah, there were, and it did. In general, I think the the women's hockey league here is quite competitive and it has a, a fairly long track record. And what's so interesting this year is that there were 
six girls nominated from the Shenzhen Vankarees, which is Kunlun Red Star's women's team, mm-hmm. um, the expansion team in China. And they're second in the league right now behind Agadel Ufa, which is a mainstay Russian team. And their sports director is actually Alexander Simak, who used to play for the New Jersey Devils. And yeah. I ran into him in the locker room. Um, but these girls from the, the China side are, some of them are actually of Chinese descent and North American born, but two of them were born in China, which was such an enormous achievement for the Chinese women, the hockey development program there. So they had two Chinese born nominees and then some North Americans. And they also had Alex Carpenter, the 2014 Sochi Olympian who just got named to NHL all-star week. So it very, very cool lineup for them. The East did win. So the Shenzhen Vankarees and and Ufa, they, they were together, even though they're great rivals on that bench, they won, but it was a cool game and they did their skills competition in between. There was some fun stuff out of that. That's great. And I forgot who it was now. I'm drawing a blank, but you, I think I remember you talking about a women's player who basically in a, has went over there and learned Russian and, you know, within a pretty yes. short period of time. Haley Williams. Yeah. So she came over last season. She's playing in St. Petersburg. She didn't speak a word of Russian, and now she speaks Russian every single day in her locker room. It's I think there's only one other English speaker on the team. And as someone who's learned Russian and in yeah. a much slower time frame than her, I have, I mean, just total hats off. It's unbelievable. But she's playing, and she was named to the Western All-Star team. So she's doing a great job over here. And I was so impressed to hear that she's speaking Russian in the locker room. Although she says it's kind of like a hybrid Haley Russian. So I don't know what <laughs> that means, but it sounds good. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you know where Haley's from? Yeah. I find that fascinating. Where she's from yeah. originally. I'm trying to think. She graduated um, University of Miami of Ohio, I want to say. Okay. And I'm, I think she was born in, in the Midwest. I want to say Illinois. Right. Yeah. See, that's very, I'm, I'm, I'm a Midwesterner, so that's very Midwestern where we want to go over there and acclimate ourselves and, and not, you know, try to fit in as much as possible. It's very Midwestern. She's done really well, so I'm I'm impressed. Certainly, <laughs> that's awesome. How so? And you so just to kind of give listeners, if you're not familiar, and I'll I'll intro you before this. But what I love about reading is like your your Q and A's with people in the KHL are are it's just great reads because it's it's there's a lot of personality both from you and from the players and in in you know it's a good mix of of people that are maybe maybe prospects or draft, you know, rights holders of NHL teams or former NHL players who are over there. And when you talk to the former NHL players like Devontae Smith-Pelly or whoever it might be, how like how often is it does it mirror what Haley's doing in terms of how much they're trying to learn the language or like how do you find that transition when it's kind of the other way? It really depends on the team in the K that they play for. So the KHL okay. is incredibly diverse in terms of the countries represented, in terms of the nationalities that play in it. But there are some teams that are import heavy and some that are not. So Devante Smith-Pelly, for example, walked onto a lineup that has only one Russian speaker on the roster and one on the bench. So Kunlun is an entirely English-speaking organization. Um, If you have someone like, um, let's say, Ty Raddy, who came from the Edmonton Oilers and is now on Nizhny Novgorod, his coach speaks English um, and is actually Canadian of Russian descent, but he's on a roster filled with Russian speakers. Brandon Kozin, another example, he's yeah. now, when I spoke with him, he used to be, I want to say he was at Yaroslavl and he had absolutely no Russian. And he would say to me, there are times when 
they're running drills at practice and I have to watch and try to observe and, and explain to myself what's going on. And sometimes I go the wrong way and, and that's right. tough. So they definitely do try. Um, Ty's doing, he said one word a day. That's what his dad recommended. So he's, he's going for it that way. But it's really impressive to watch some of these guys land in Russia and then have to try and acclimate. And we've certainly heard plenty of the horror stories on spit and chiclets in later <laughs> months and later days. But, but some of them really embrace it. Like Nigel Dawes is a cult figure in Kazakhstan. Now go figure. And he's playing in Russia these days. So That's crazy. it's a pretty cool experience for guys like him that, it, yeah, embrace it. Do you, do you sense, and I was going to ask you about that because you hear, you know, Ryan Whitney telling his stories or whatever, has it stabilized? Like, is there still those, those same issues where you may not get paid or the, you know, the practices are crazy or like, how much of that do you hear? So I always ask, and there's sort of a mixed bag. There have been incidents, um, either financially or otherwise, that have continued to dog players. I know that there were some issues at Admiral Vladivostok, and I've spoken with some players who are still, I, I believe, in litigation or in discussions with their agents about that. But in terms of the day-to-day -day experience, a lot of the coaching staff, even some of those holdout Russian coaches, have been forced to modernize as more imports come over, yeah. as the league itself takes takes steps to become more modern, and they really have made some strides recently. Like even um, Vladimir Kriknov, who coaches Dinamo, he's an old Russian holdout coach. Yeah. Nigel Dawes was telling me that he's heard that Kriknov's five practices a day have been reduced, and <laughs> and that you know five practices saw, a day. I, I like know. that. He's down to four. He's modernized himself. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a vacation now. Um, <laughs> but like even even Red Army, so they hadn't won up until last season. They hadn't won a Gagarin Cup in a really long time, and they're under a, a younger Russian coach, Igor Nikitin, and he's definitely implemented more rest days. And Nigel Dawes told me when I interviewed him a few months ago that he thinks the reason Red Army was the regular season champion but never the Gagarin champion was because they were running out of steam by yeah. the end of the, the end of the season. So they're starting to incorporate a lot more. I think. Of, of coaching and and even league-wide regulations that would be would be comparable to the NHL. They have a way to go, but they're doing a lot in a short amount of time. Um, it's funny because you would hear versions of that in the NHL. Like I remember back, you know, when John Tortorella was the coach of the Rangers, that there was some of that. Like it, it was such a grind for the Rangers that by the time they got to the second or third round of the playoffs in that era, like they were out of gas. It's like it's just a different version. And so we've seen like in the NHL this year. I mean, have you seen like coaches, there's a lot of turnover. Coaches are really under scrutiny for the past and, and even just how they handle players. Has any of that found its way to the KHL? I mean, you, you sounds like there's some adjustments going on. Is it just in the, in kind of in the hopes of winning more or has there been a cultural shift, do you think? I think it's probably a mix of both. I think the KHL as a league under its leadership now has realized that there's so much value uh, in modernizing and and being a bit more uniform. So if, if you think of the KHL in comparison to other European sports and how they're managed, I would liken it more to soccer leagues than I would to the NHL or the okay. NFL, where there's so much more league sharing. Um, teams have traditionally had more independence, and there's been a great deal of variation. But one of the things that the KHL has done is bounce out some teams that were financially insolvent. The league has gotten a bit smaller in that respect. They're being very careful when they when they go about their expansion moves. They certainly have um, a desire to move more into Asia. They have Kunlun now in China, but the president of the KHL expressed 
an interest in having more teams in Asia in the future. But in general, they're they're tightening up a little bit financially. Yeah. They're they're implementing league wide tech and marketing campaigns that I think are going to be really helpful. So on the coaching side, you see a mix. You actually see more import coaches popping over too. You have um, Bob Hartley, who is obviously with Colorado and is now with Avant Garde. Mike Polino, who is an assistant coach with the New York Rangers, Kurt Frazier, an NHL alum who's coaching Kuhnland. So you're getting also more international influence in the locker rooms too. Are there import rules in terms of how many players they can have from North America or whatever? There certainly are, and but it also varies country by country. So if you look at Kuhnland, for example, um, if you're a player of Chinese descent that was born in North America, you actually count toward the local okay. side. Um, so they're actually able to carry what we would consider to be more import players versus Russian players or Chinese-born players. In fact, this season, I believe there is no Chinese-born Chinese player on the men's team. The women's team, it's a different story. So yeah. there are league regulations about about imports, but it depends on where the team is actually domiciled because you have teams in six different countries and they are allowed to carry um, players from their own nationality. And, and that's considered to be a non-import. In yeah. Kazakhstan, for example, when Nigel Dawes played, he got citizenship and, and became a Kazakh player. So you have guys that are are doing that and you have some kind of relaxed rules for a team like Kunlin that's trying to not only get it start, but also fuel the Chinese Olympic team for 2022 mm-hmm. when Beijing hosts. So yeah, there's absolutely limits there, but it is a very international league. And I sort of only see it trending that way more as more NHL players and AHL players consider it an option. Yeah. What do you, what do you get the sense? Like, what's the relationship now between the NHL and the KHL? Like, I remember when the KHL started, it was a lot, you know, there was a lot of, it, it seemed contentious and, you know, there was some battles and players' rights going back and forth. Like, where, how are things as, uh, in, in that regard? I think that in general, um, there's more of an agreement than than might be anticipated. And okay. I was speaking with the president of the K, and he actually printed out a calendar for me to help me understand how the KHL and NHL seasons line up, because he was saying that there have been talks between the leagues about hosting a KHL-NHL game, which I would love to see kind of all of the Summit series back in the day. be awesome. But it's virtually impossible timing-wise in terms of the conflicts. There were maybe only one to three days on that calendar that were even feasible, and then you have to worry about where it would be hosted and, and who's in the thick of playoffs, who's not. So there's more conversations happening for sure. And I know that the NHL is considering um, putting a, a global game in Russia that's always been on the table. And and with just the NHL rights in general, Yandex, which is kind of like, uh, I would say the Russian Google, but also Uber and, and Maps combined, they, <laughs> they have the exclusive rights. It's a huge, huge tech conglomerate <laughs> here. They have... Um, the rights to the NHL and they broadcast for free on their streaming platform. So you can get access to any NHL game you want to watch here. And that's a big deal too. Yeah. So I think that there's, of course there's competitiveness and say was very careful with me yesterday when I was interviewing Kaprizov and right. Sorokin about their, their intentions. They didn't want me to get too much into it because that's sensitive for them, but you know, they know that this is going to happen. And there are some teams like Scott St. Petersburg that maybe more embrace it knowing that they'll lose talent, but also being proud to provide that talent. Right. Uh, and I was glad you asked. I mean, because you are, I mean, and I want to get to that interview in a second, because you are writing for the KHL's website. So like, I'm sure there's a delicate, you know, you don't want to like start pumping up the NHL or whatever in these conversations. But 
let's let's talk about that Kaprizov, you know, conversation that you had this week because I I mean. In Minnesota, you can't write about this guy enough. You can't give fans there enough information. There's been so much anticipation um, about him coming over, and almost it, it, it's it reminds me a lot about uh, the the anticipation in DC with Kuznetsov. Like there was, you know, fans just couldn't mm. wait, and it almost became like, is this ever really going to happen? And is this guy going to live up to ex- expectations? And as we've seen, he absolutely has. With Kaprizov, how did that how did that conversation go? And I'm glad you asked him that. And what was kind of his response there about? coming over well he i did ask him and i told the khl flat out i was like look i'm a journalist and i have to ask it's just impossible not to and he can answer it however he sees fit we had a saiska media person in the room but when i asked him he was a little not taken aback but he was a little nervous i could tell but he he expressed himself very genuinely and and i think correctly which is we have a season completion to focus on. We have playoffs. They're in contention for the Gagarin Cup again, um, but that he has a desire to go. And I think the general consensus here is that uh, Kaprizov is going to go at the end of the season, but it's it's definitely something that they, they dance around a little bit. But Kaprizov, he's one of those players that wears his heart on his sleeve a little bit, which I, I love about him. And he has this smile that I even mentioned in the interview that's just always, it's ever present. And in yeah. Russia, that's a big deal because there are some old school Russian coaches who are like, hockey is serious business. Like, do not smile. In fact, Kravtsov was told that when he was here and then when he scored in Rangers preseason, I don't know if you remember, but he didn't smile right away and he got a little bit of, they, they were chiding him a little bit for yeah. it. So with Kaprizov, it's a little different. There's just this real exuberance and excitement about playing that's endeared him to fans here. And and I was interviewing him and he was on a swivel chair and there were a couple of times where he did a full 360. Like he's just bouncing around with energy. And I think that that's going to go over really well when he comes over to the NHL ultimately because he can't contain it. Right. And that's so different than the persona. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm from Detroit. I remember the Russian five and, and they came over and, and, you know, like it was, I guess Fedorov wouldn't fit this, but you, like you saw like these guys like Fatizov and there was like, um, I don't want to say dignity because it's not, I don't want to like be insulting the other way because I love the energy, but it, it, the personalities were different. Right. And it, I, I'm cur- I'm curious if the next generation will reflect that. It's interesting. It goes a, a couple different ways because I also interviewed Ilyas Sorokin and the same day that hasn't come out yet. And yeah. he's the big New York Islanders goaltending prospect. Now, also, we have the layer of the fact that he's a goaltender to contend with. <laughs> right. That's a he, whole other. He was hysterically funny, like hysterically funny. I don't know if I've laughed as much in an interview as I did with Ilya. Yeah. And he speaks great English, by the way, unbelievable English, and his comprehension is even higher than his speaking ability, which is remarkable. Um, and he is more reserved. He has more of that Russian, um, that, that front that we tend to associate with Russians that yeah. isn't always true. Um, but I think at the same time, if Islanders fans and the NHL and everyone really take the effort to get to know him, they're going to be richly rewarded because he has a great personality behind all of that. Do you, just in terms of... Um mechanics are you doing these interviews in russian and then they're translated or typically like kaprizov or how (laughs) how do you do that so with with these two it's funny because they both speak more english than they let on so i had a translator with me and i was speaking in english to them and occasionally they were responding to me directly in english and then 
Other times they would turn to the translator and say, you know, I don't understand, but I understand enough Russian to be able to push them or to make sure that I've gotten everything from the translator as well, because that's right. a hard job when, when these players are rattling off. So these were a weird hybrid of English and Russian. Um, we got a little bit of both, and especially with Sarokin. He was speaking so much more English than I anticipated that I even denoted it in the interview because I was shocked at some of the answers that he came out with directly to me. So this one was a bit of a hodgepodge. I normally prefer to work with a translator because I don't want to make any mistakes. Russian is not my native language. Yeah. And while I can have a basic conversation in these more in-depth interviews, I really want to be able to capture their sense of humor or the nuances and, and hockey vocab in, in Russian is daunting to say the least. <laughs> right. right. Um, it always makes me nervous when you're doing an interview with a translator, because sometimes like, the person will like talk for like 10 minutes and then the translator will be like, yeah, he's, you know, he's excited. He's excited for the opportunity. And you're like, mm, oh, it drives I feel me like crazy. <laughs> I know this has happened to me before. So actually what I do now is I always record it and then I go home and listen. And if I have to fill in gaps, I do or yeah. I, I run it by a native speaker to fill in gaps because you do have to be careful with that. But I find that at least being able to speak some Russian or being able to ask them some simple, silly questions, even if that's all it is in Russian, it opens them up a bit more. And then the conversation flows more. And even if I'm working with a translator, there's a level of comfort that means they're going to speak a bit more. And I can always go back and make sure that that no holes have been have been put into that interview. That's great. So so I, to, to stay on Kaprizov a little bit, what else stood out about that conversation you had with him in in terms of his personality? Because that, that's the one thing, you know, I think we talk a lot about what, what, what to expect on the ice with him. And, and I saw him, gosh, where, where did I see him? Maybe the World Championships a couple of years ago playing with Pavel Datsuk and he looked amazing. But I don't, I have no sense mm. of the kind of kid he is, right? And what the Wild are getting. He, so... First of all, the weirdest thing was I'm sitting waiting for him after Red Army practice and I'm we were in like the press center. It was completely empty. And when he walked in, he was swinging a handsaw around <laughs> his head with a I, I, I kid you not with a gold bow on it. And I was like, Carol, why do you have a saw in the Sayaska locker room? And he was explaining to me that he was named player of the game against Sochi. And Sochi has some sponsor that makes saws. So they gave him one and wrapped it in a bow. So he, he rolls in with a saw over his head. And I was like, okay, well, I've never had this happen before in an interview. That's interesting. <laughs> oh um, but he's That's like great. a very, he's a super exuberant kid both on the ice and off of it um he gets really animated when he's talking about hockey he has a, a fun sense of humor he's just constantly moving he's one of those people that is never at rest and i like that about him and it's something that's endeared him a great deal to the russia fans as well i mean if you go to say a scott arena in moscow it's basically kaprizov city and right. they're going to be devastated when uh. he leaves he also scored the game winner in the olympics in 2018 so yeah. there's a national recognition for that um, but overall, I mean, he comes from Novokuznetsk, which is between Mongolia and Kazakhstan. It's an industrial city. It has a now defunct KHL team, but when he was growing up, they had one and it had a lot of financial troubles. So a lot of young guys like Kaprizov, um, like Sorokin, they got chances much earlier than other teams would have allowed. And in Russia, you have to earn your playing time. A lot of Russian coaches do not just easily gift playing time to young players. And, and we see consequences of that all the time with prospects that we don't get enough of a, 
enough of a, a view into. Like Alexander Romanov, for example, at CSKA is only averaging somewhere around 11 minutes of ice time a game the last I looked, which is a big deal because yeah. he's a big prospect. But, you know, there's an, an admission he might be going over and he has to earn that ice time. But with, with a guy like Kaprizov, he was playing a lot from a young age and he was playing in this sort of remote part of Russia and then fought his way up the ranks. But you can just see that, that that excitement he had growing up as a kid and playing, it never left him. And he talked a lot about his brother too in the interview or a little bit just saying, you know, he chose soccer, I chose hockey. And then his brother walked in midway through the interview. So you can see he's a very family oriented mm-hmm. kid that's, that's just really grateful for the chance. Do you think that will, and I mean, we're just, we're trying to like project here and in, with individuals, which is probably unfair, but when he, when he makes a move to the NHL and he, now has to acclimate himself culturally and and behave within an NHL dressing room. Do you think that personality comes with him? You know what I mean? Like I wonder because you got him in his natural setting and and you got to see the real the real you know Kaprizov. I, I I just wonder how often we get to see these real real personalities once they come to North America. I think it's hard to say, and and we've seen such a mix, right, among the Russians that have come over, including the ones that have flamed out. And, you know, Shapachev is a great example. He had such a rough go in Vegas, and now he's the leading point scorer in the KHL right now. And he's clearly a a great player who, who really just didn't have a good time adjusting. I'm hopeful for Kirill. I think there's something going for him, which is that he was under the mentorship of Ryan Stoa at one time. And he actually played on a line with him. And Stoa used to invite him out to dinner, even though Kirill didn't speak English. And wanting to be friends with Ryan actually ignited his interest in learning English. And so they used to sit there and Ryan wouldn't let him use Google Translate. He would make him Hmm. demonstrate with his hands or or talk. And I think having had that experience is a big deal because a lot of Russian players come from majority Russian squads where they're not necessarily exposed to the imports as much. And then when they come to the NHL locker room, it's it's isolating. But Kirill speaks more English than I expected him to speak. Um, Sarokin even more. And I, I hope that that aids them in being able to be themselves in the locker room. But of course, there's a transition and the language barrier is real. Um, but I'm hopeful for him. Yeah. I, I think a big part of it, that's such a great point about Ryan Stoa is who, you know, who do you end up befriending in that room? Like I was... So I, I started as an NHL writer covering the Atlanta Thrashers and the and the Ilya Kovalchuk and Slava Kozlov. Like they, I loved dealing with both of them, mm. and they were like Kozy's one of my favorites of all time. Like it, like it, just seeing him makes me smile. And I interviewed him earlier this season. I saw too, that. Actually. He's I, great. Like he's the best. Like I, I like when you talk about the subtle sense of humor. Like he's a guy that just makes me like he doesn't crack a smile, but he says something, and you know he he has that right. Like that very subtle sense of humor. Um, totally. And, but I think where Ilya Kovalchuk benefited at the time, you know, he had a young Danny Heatley that they were, they befriended. And, and I, you know, and I think he having that friendship and, and having someone like that really benefited him. And, and, you know, that's, I guess we just, we sometimes we don't, we don't notice those things. You know, you, you get caught up on the ice and, and all that. And hey, how's this guy looking? How's the transition going? And, and it's such a cultural difference. It is. And there's a big cultural difference in terms of how players interact on the ice. Russians, for example, don't tend to speak a lot on the ice, whereas North Americans are chirping at each other all night. Layer that difference on top of the fact that they're speaking in a language that you may not understand or you only partially understand. That's big pressure on the ice culturally as well. And then you have to try to develop chemistry on top of it. Yeah. 
that's it's hard. Um, all right, so I know Islanders fans are going to want to know more about Sorokin, and, <laughs> and and it sounds like that went really well. So without, I don't want you to give away. And it may, when is that going to be posted so we can tease it a little bit? It'll be posted on Monday. I think Islanders fans will enjoy getting to know him as I did. <laughs> uh-huh. Awesome. So without giving away the story, what stood out about that conversation in terms of his personality and what they can expect with him? Well, he's unbelievably funny. I, I won't give this one away, but he told me a hysterical story about a friendly in the lead up to the World Juniors that just had us literally on the floor. So he's very dry in his delivery. But what struck me is how many times he responded to me directly in English. So actually, I asked him, I said, you know, being a goaltender is a very brave decision, in my opinion. It's the craziest position in hockey, basically. How did you decide to do it? And he said to me in English, I hate running and they have beautiful gear. And I was like, <laughs> what? It's just unreal. It was like such a great goalie answer, just oh, totally off the wall. Great. So he's he's very funny. and And I think... His his performance has been fantastic. He was a little bit overshadowed by Shostyorkin, who had a slightly better season last season, um, or he had a really an unbelievable season, I can't even say slightly, and, and yeah. now is in New York. But it will be so much fun if he goes to the Islanders to see the two of them face off against each other because they're not only fierce rivals, they're best friends. Oh, and they have great. a great relationship, and, and it will be really fun to watch that relationship develop. And, and Sorokin really attributes success for both of them off the back of that that they were pushing each other but at the end of the night they were still hugging each other and and i think that that'll be really fun to watch they also have a tendency to do these little duets on instagram so i'm I'm hoping for a lot of music if we uh, get them in new york together that's great i mean that's that's the future right like that's that's gonna happen maybe two or three years down the line I know. And I'm excited for it. They're they're both great kids and they both had standout careers in the KHL at a young age, which is no joke because yeah. especially as a goaltender and especially as a youngster, you have to fight for that ice time. All right. The third young player, again, because we don't get a ton of information here that I know Montreal fans, and you, you mentioned him briefly, is Alexander Romanov, the defenseman prospect. Have you mm. talked to him or have like what's the word there on, on how he's playing and, and how things are going? I haven't spoken to him directly this week and he's not on the all-star squad. So okay. I will, I will see what I can do, but I'm, I'm interested to talk to him. He's yeah. a tough one to measure in the regular season at say because he's not getting a ton of ice time. And there's, you know, a couple schools of thought on why that might be one. It's largely believed he declined his contract extension at say So if that's the case, what's the point? Right. And also he's young and this is a, a squad that doesn't gift ice time to youngsters. At the same time, Bragan, the head coach of the Russia World Junior Squad, was talking just today to media, and he was saying, like, I think that this kid is made for the NHL, essentially, and Mm -hmm. he's going to develop more there. So normally, I'm not an advocate for young players coming over early. I think the distraction of the language barrier and everything else can really hurt them if their confidence in their own game isn't quite up to snuff. And I tend to to like the trajectory of a Panarin or a Gusev more. But in his particular case, he plays a very physical, very aggressive game that is well-suited to North America and not necessarily to the K. He's a creative player. He's he's demonstrated himself on the world stage anyway, at least with the national team, and and has had a good run with Seiska, although limited. And I could really see him benefiting from going over, even if he's playing in the AHL for a while, I think that North America is going to suit him. And I think that even Bragan, his coach, feels the same way. Yeah. 
Um, all right. And then last interview that you, you, you've done recently that I want to talk to you about, even though I, we could get him in, the, the Slava Gretzky thing was fun too. That, that, like, that's a complete aside. I know. Like, the, the, you know, and there was a line in there, uh, you know, where he, ba- in the kind of reading between the lines is like, basically like he, you know, he wants to accomplish his own things. Like there's, like, there's no way he'll ever live up to the la- that last get in it, last name, but um, it is pretty cool that there's a Slava Gretzky running around in, in the All-Star game. I know. And the one the one thing I have to reinforce because it kills me, he didn't pick 99. They gave it to him, which is so oh. brutal. Um, that was not his number growing up. But yeah, he, he wants to be his own person. And he's so proud of this all-star nomination because he gets so little ice time at Minsk. And he was like, I just want the chance to play. I used yeah. to sneak out of my window to play. And I thought, good for you. So I'm rooting for Slava Gretzky at the all-star weekend for sure. Yeah, that's that's great. But I wanted to talk to you about the Kozlov conversation that you had. And there was, I'd never heard this phrase. And I think you, you alluded to it as a kind of a Russian coaching phrase. But when you were talking to... Kozlov, you said in order to coach, you have to kill the player inside you, and I I hadn't heard that. What where did you hear that, and what was his response? A Russian journalist once said that to me, yeah. and said that it was a common thing that's said in Russian, and and it it fascinated me because I've watched this on both sides. So Slava Kozlov is a is a good example in terms of he played until he was I think 43. Yeah. Says he might have been able to play more but he he won Stanley Cups, Gagarin Cups and and didn't regret the decision ultimately. On the flip side, I've also spent a lot of time with Alexei Kovalev who's now making his coaching debut. He's in his second season with Kumlin Red Star. And as of last season, they had a huge, like absolutely enormous slew of injuries. Mm -hmm. And there was talk in the 11th hour of signing him to a player contract and putting him (laughs) back out on the ice. And he's 46 years old and he was 45 at the time, but I can tell you he's more than capable. And he actually plays the guys two on two, three on three. And one of the beauties of, of having him as a coach is that he still has the ability to get on the ice and demonstrate what made him an elite player. Yeah. So I think it's a very interesting point um, about eliminating those emotions. And, and that's usually what the Russians are alluding to. Kozlov, you can imagine from his personality that if he was like, I'm done playing, he would be done playing. Right. No question. Yes. Um, Kozlov has a bit more of that exuberance that I, I associate with someone like Kaprizov. And he still has that love for the game and that player mentality. Now that that's not taking away from him as a coach. He's a he's been a fantastic coach at Kuhn. The guys love being coached by him. But it's an interesting point overall. I can imagine it's very hard to make that transition when you love to play. Is is Kozlov an assistant? What's his like? It looked like I, the picture with the, the story had him with Bob Hartley on a bench. That's right. He's yeah. the assistant coach to Bob Hartley at Avantgarde. Oh, that's great. That's great. Did you talk to Bob? I have. I've spoken to him many times. Now, there's someone who's really embraced his best Russia life. Like, he's in the classic fur yes. hat. Oh, they God. dressed him up as as Dead Moroz, which is basically the Russian Santa Claus, and had him giving Christmas greetings. He speaks in Russian every once in a while. Bob is, Bob's embraced the Russian lifestyle. He's, he's doing really well at Avant-Garde. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Tell him hello if you see him while you're there i will i'll see him this weekend he's coaching one of the all-star teams all right definitely the uh, so all right um um, let's let me do this let's take a quick break here and and then i want to kind of get into your story and how you ended up covering russia to the extent that you have so hold on one second let's take a break and we'll jump right back this time of year we talk about physical fitness a lot 
like I'm finally getting off the couch and out working out, not to humble brag. I've actually been to the gym in the last week. But there's another side of the game that's just as important. And I'm talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body. And Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. And if you head to calm.com slash full60, you'll get 40% off a Calm premium membership. That's calm.com slash full60. So for a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm for a 40% discount to an annual membership. Again, at calm.com slash full60. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better, which sounds pretty awesome to me. So get started at calm.com slash full60. All right. So, so Jillian, you're, uh, you and I have talked, so I know a little bit, but for the listener, you're not, you know, you're not from Russia. Like, how did you get connected to all this? Um, so interestingly, it was through hockey. I, I grew up a huge hockey fan. I went to my first game with a friend and her dad when I was probably, I don't know, eight or probably seven or eight. And I just head over heels. I grew up outside of Philly. So um, I had the, the Philadelphia Flyers thrust upon me for better or for worse <laughs> and, uh, usually for worse. And it just so happened that the Flyers were pretty unceremoniously disposed of in a Stanley cup final at the hands of the Detroit Red Wings when I was young. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. And the, and the fans lined the street with brooms and everything else. It was, it was really nice to experience as a, as an introduction to Philadelphia sports. But anyway, I I was I became obsessed with them. At first it was a hate-fueled obsession because I couldn't believe what they did to the Flyers, but I was so fascinated by these guys with these names I couldn't pronounce who just seemed to play a totally different style than I'd ever seen. And I wasn't a hockey player. I was super young at the time, but it was almost impossible not to notice how different yeah. they were from everybody else. The laser sharp passing, that sixth sense that they could tell where one another was on the ice without even looking. Igor Larionov could slow a play down from 60 to zero and it felt mm. like everything stopped moving. They were unbelievable. So I became very interested in trying to understand how they became the way that they were. And I became obsessed with Russian and Soviet hockey. And I started trying to buy um, Tadasov's memoirs on eBay. And I was buying memorabilia. And and I got really obsessive about it. And then when I went to college, the hockey twist really brought me into Russia more broadly. So I started taking history and politics. And I became interested in the culture. And I started traveling there. it's just so interesting that this group of guys who came over at a time when when the Soviet Union had just fallen and, and relations were just as bad then and, and maybe they're worse now. And I've heard some say that they think it's worse now. In yeah. that environment, they attracted me to a culture that was so misunderstood and they led me to want to understand it, which I know maybe is a tired platitude, but it, it feels like sport really does have the power to change the world in that sense. And ultimately, it was it was hockey that brought me to Russia, even though I didn't start my career as a sports journalist. Well, all right, that's that's a natural lead. And what did you start your career as? I started out as a financial journalist. So I okay. when I graduated college, I. At the time, I think I I always knew that I wanted to be a sports journalist from when I was a kid. I used to write letters to Comcast Sportsnet asking for Steve Coates' job. And then one day Steve Coates (laughs) called me, I swear, when I was 10 or 11. 
And he talked to me, this is not a joke. He talked to me for the better part of an hour. And he really, you know, really like took the time. And as a kid, I was so blown away by that. And then eventually they invited me to a sports broadcasting camp they had for kids. And Jim Jackson was leading it, who's still with the Flyers today. And as of maybe even a month ago, he was reviewing the latest iteration of my reel. So if you want to talk about mentorship, what they did for me as a kid was unbelievable. But as reality starts to set in, especially I went to Columbia, which is a rather heavy Wall Street feeder. I graduated in the midst of the worst job market in in a very long time. It was right after the recession. I I thought to myself, can I make a career out of this? And are there people like me in sports? And I was a nerd. And luckily that has now been embraced in the sports world. But you know, even as recently, thank as a God for years those ago, of us who are complete nerds. You know, it's. I'm glad that the nerds are finally winning out. Right. Thank God for that, Craig. <laughs> I don't know what we'd be doing. Oh my um, gosh. But it's true. I mean, it's it's made a big change in a relatively short amount of time. So I thought, okay, I want to be a journalist. I'm not so sure how I'll get into the sports thing, but finance in New York, at least it pays. There's some guarantees. I knew that I could do it, and. You know, I don't regret that detour at all because it gave me a lot of confidence with numbers, data, analytics, because in finance, you can't get away without it. And I started to meet a lot of people who were involved in sports on the investment side, and that always provided really interesting angles too. So I did maintain a relationship to sports, but I didn't jump wholeheartedly into it right away. Who were you working for like when you were working in finance? I started as a print reporter for Institutional Investor. I used to cover hedge funds, um, which is a very secretive part of finance. It was a lot of fun to break scoops because, believe me, if if you think sports people don't like being scooped, multi-billion dollar hedge fund managers are (laughs) threatening to to sue you and all other kinds of things. Um, And then I moved over to the broadcast side and I was an anchor for Asset TV, which is a financial news and research platform. It's broadcast on the Bloomberg terminal. And I had some very cool experiences. They actually sent me to the Olympics as a sports business reporter to Rio. And I went to the World Economic Forum in Davos. So that was an, an awesome experience as a young broadcast reporter. Yeah. It's interesting because you're right. Like that's, that is such valuable experience. Um, I'm, it's, it's, it's like timely because I'm reading, um, have you read the book Range, the David Epstein book? just about no but i'm how, dying like, to it's great and it, it it's basically warns against the special specialization because you you end up becoming if you become so specialized you end up becoming overconfident and not as mm. you, not you know what i mean like if you're only doing one thing yeah and, and maybe and i and i worry like oh, maybe i've done just you know as a hockey writer and and kind of a hockey journalist you know, if if it was over specialized, and I think that having that background, so that when you're doing a story on, you know, relationships between two countries, or, or you know, these people that you covered that are in the the world of finance and hedge funds, there's a, they own the teams. You know, I was just I'm just writing about the Devils and and Ray Shero and you know trying to anticipate how the hedge fund owner is going to react and. Absolutely. You know, having that background, how has it served you? Have you seen? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have a horrible Soviet sports metaphor, but I'm going to make it and reveal what a nerd I am. But but the Soviet the the Soviet school of thought around around success in sports was always around a multi sport, multidisciplinary model. And Slava Fetisov is actually he just started a hockey school in Domodedovo, and all of the children there right now are training for free. But one of the main tenants 
is multi-sport training. I mean, talk to yeah. Wayne Gretzky, talk to Gordie Howe. I mean, we can't talk to Gordie Howe, but he was also a multi-sport athlete and they really valued the time that they put their hockey sticks down and they played something else. And that was such a huge impact in how they trained themselves to think about their sport when they came back to it. Igor Larionov, of course, it's not a sport, but he was a, a, a rabid chess player. So I think that all of these things serve to the same purpose, which is you have so many different lenses then by which to look at whatever it is that you're doing. And in finance, you know, first of all, you have to be absolutely maniacal about your details because a mistake in financial journalism can move the stock market. It can impact mm. the, the incomes of teachers whose pension funds are investing. I mean, it's a very, very serious thing. And I had a, an editor early on who put the fear of God in me about getting my details right. So as a sports journalist, you know, often you could say to yourself, and I know no one at the athletic does this because you guys are incredible, but there, there's a sort of, I don't know how to explain it, but there's maybe an ability to not have to get it completely right because the athletes are untouchable or, you know, and, and I just find that that mentality in sports, it, there's sometimes an opportunity for anyone to be a journalist in, in an area like sports where everything's so public. So it forces you to be so much more careful about the information. I, I think about the the motivations behind why people tell me what they tell me, because in finance, right. they're often telling you things to try and move the markets in their direction. So all of that played in pretty richly to how I started to report on sports. So maybe it made me more of a psycho, which is absolutely probably true. But at the same time, <laughs> I really want to get it right. That's why sometimes I'm a little nutty about the the Russian names too. It's just, it's attention to detail that finance definitely put into my brain for better or for yeah. worse. And really it's, it's very similar in that, you know, if someone's telling you something, it may not be to shift the market, but it may be to align themselves for a job or, you know what I mean? Like there's totally, there's totally. always motivations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that cynicism, I think sometimes goes too far the other way, right? Like I think sometimes journalists can apply too much of a cynical lens to what someone is saying, <laughs> but if you can balance it and yeah. you can kind of work with it. It, it's helpful and you develop a bit of a feel too over time for, you know, when am I being BSed and when I'm, when I'm not, right. and, you know, what, what do I think will serve them here? But I think having experience on another beat definitely made me a bit more sensitive to all of that. So how long did you do that for? I did it for, I would say, wow, five, six years. I stopped a little bit to go to grad school um, and then, and then came back. So Maybe let's say five total is about what yeah. I did in financial journalism. And when did the transition transition to hockey and sports begin? So in earnest, I I was trying for a while, but I was trying half heartedly because I was so busy um, at Asset TV, and I was keeping an ear out. But I knew that I was moving closer to the shortlist for an international fellowship to move to Russia. And it was a region that even outside of sports, I had developed a professional interest in. And at first, the approach was going to be that I was going to go and maybe go to a Bloomberg Russia and just watch a lot of hockey games on the side or, or do something that was more in line with what I had been doing before. It's also a World yeah. Cup year, so there were interesting sports business stories out of that. Um, but ultimately, I was actually, I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I was interviewing someone at Russia House. And... He said to me, we're doing a pickup hockey game outside tonight with, they had a couple of players from North America and Russia, and, and I can't for the life of me remember who exactly they had and some politicians <laughs> yeah. too. And he was like, they're going to play outside. So he invited me and I went down, it was like 
10 o'clock at night in the Alps, just pitch black. You could see the stars. It was such, it was just the way hockey is meant to be played, you know? And yeah. I remember standing there, I was still waiting on this fellowship and and what was going to come of it. And I, I was so overcome with emotion. I actually, I, I did start to cry standing there. Mm. And I thought to myself, if I get this opportunity, I have to go for it. Like Russian mm. hockey is where it started. And I, I want this to be the moment. And I had no idea if I'd get the fellowship, but ultimately for some reason that experience tipped me off into the direction that I was already trending toward. And, and ultimately I did win the fellowship and, and sort of the rest was history. But what's so crazy is that a few years later, I, I was in the locker room at Kuhnlin Red Star and I was talking to Scott McPherson, who's now their GM. I don't think he had been made their GM yet. And we were talking about my background and he goes, wait a second, you were at Davos, I was at Davos. And he goes, you know, I, I hosted this hockey game and I looked at him and I'm like, you've gotta be kidding me. So he pulled up my phone and we started to go through the pictures and yeah. Scott McPherson was in every single one of my photos. And I thought how ironic and full circle that I would wind up in hockey alongside someone at that night that really kind of tipped the scales for me. It was just, it felt like a little bit of a nod from the universe that I was on the right track. Right. Yeah, everything's aligning. God, I, it's so cool that you can have that moment in time where you're like, it becomes so clear to you. You know, I love that. Yeah. And when everything just kind of falls away and, you know, I'm a big advocate for following your passion. It's it's easier said than done for a whole host of reasons, but sure. there, I think there comes a point where you can't deny it anymore. And that's, that's definitely the point that I got to. Um, okay. And so like, so you decide, okay, I have to do this. When did, when did you... Like, what were some of the first outlets you started working for on the sports side? So I moved to Russia and I was on a program that had me in intensive language training for a couple of months during the World Cup. Okay. So I and I had been doing some sports business stories on the side in finance. But when I got to Russia, I had to basically hustle my way into the KHL, which was a real mess. In fact, it came down to about a 48 hour window where I had to pick um what I was going to do. And I had an offer to be a financial TV reporter and I was holding out and holding out. And then finally an opportunity came through with the KHL to work with Kuhnland Red Star because they're an English speaking organization in the K. And, and then I started this whirlwind tour of being uh -huh. their locker room reporter and going back and forth from China to Russia during the season. Um, but I, I also got an opportunity to work for Sport Express, which is Russia's largest sports newspaper. And the thing with them yeah is that for so long, they had not ignored, but they had undercovered their import players in the K uh, because there was, there was an issue with communication. So I pitched to them like, listen, I can interview the imports. We can work on the translation together. Or you can do the translation, but ultimately we can open up this new line into the lives of imports. So whereas I, I often try to share the stories of Russian players with North Americans today, I also try to do the reverse with the imports to the Russians because they don't get to hear their stories and some of the ways that they wound up in the KHL are very interesting. So yeah. I was doing work with them and also producing video content and and kind of introducing Kunlin Red Star to the, the world and, and to their social media on the other side. And that's what I was balancing between when I was actually on the fellowship year. So how hard is it because I think there's just, it's human nature when you're successful in one industry or one line of work and you, you know, you're sitting on a TV offer to continue in finance, that's, you know, probably pretty good. How difficult was it to string that out or to say no to that when there's so much uncertainty on the other side? 
I think the worst was actually not that because when the KHL came through, I said, okay, this is easy. I, I know yeah. I want to do this. When I left Russia, I had a full-time job offer to stay in Moscow again as either a political business correspondent. And at okay. the time, I did not have a full-time offer in anything related to sports. We were in open discussions, but there was no guarantee. And the panic, I, I don't even know if I can begin to explain to you the anxiety I felt sitting on an offer because I thought, yeah. if I turn this down and I fail, how will I how will I ever explain myself a year from now? And there was a string of months where I had no idea what was going to happen. And I, I ultimately turned it down and moved home to America and said, I'm going to just try and figure this out. And I started to hit the ground. But there were so many nights when I'd wake up at one, two o'clock in the morning and I'd think, well, I could just be in Moscow. I'd have a full-time job. Nobody would be asking me what I'm doing. And the, right. you can't sugarcoat that. I think that's the stuff that often gets pushed under the the rug when you make a, a, a tough decision like that. But that it really sucked, I mean, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was it was hard to navigate. And even today, I mean, there's no certainty, right? And and there are times when I think about how cushy it was just clocking into that, you know, the nine to five in a sense in New York and and being surrounded by things that were familiar and everything else. But ultimately you have to ask yourself why you're doing this. And for me, it was because I had no other choice. So yeah, there's discomfort along the way, but but you do find a way to suck it up. But it, it's not easy by any means. Right, right. What have you found the biggest challenge? In sports reporting, yeah, like in that, or, yeah. As you made that transition, and and now, I mean, there's a lot of hustle to what you do, right? Like I, I you know, I, I admire you. Like there is, there's just, you know, there's you've got to come up with good story ideas. There's pitches. There's all that. It's it's not an easy existence. I don't imagine. The travel's pretty brutal. That that I'm just gonna note because I spend some yeah. time in China and I spend some time in Russia. Almost this season, it's been almost every month. So that that could be rough, <laughs> but I, be I think. You know, source development's always tough as a journalist. And in Russia, it's a very insular culture to begin with. Um, in sports in general, there's an, an old boys club element that you have to worry about too. Um, so I think establishing those relationships. Not in hockey, though. There's no old boys club in hockey. I can. I can oh, no, no, definitely not. So you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. been a walk in the park. Um, yeah, right. They pulled out the red carpet. But, you know, just convincing people. Like, I remember requesting an interview with Sergei Fedorov, and I'd been requesting and requesting. Sayaska mm. wouldn't even respond to me. Um, I couldn't get right. through on another end. And ultimately, I had to sit with Slava Fetisov and have Slava Fetisov call Sergey and be like, it's okay, you can talk to her, it's fine. And even when right. I got to Sayaska, the guards didn't want to let me in. They thought I was some kind of rabid fangirl that had shown up to to try and get a glimpse of Sergey. And, you know, that kind of stuff, it's silly, but it's it's that little low-grade nonsense that you have to mm. fight through sometimes that you don't even realize the toll that it's taking on you or the stress it's causing you. But in, in Russia, I think it's amplified. There's more bureaucracy. There's more wariness. Um, but it's definitely something that I've had to contend with. You always have to factor in more time and more begging than you might have realized you'd have to. Has there been any issues? I mean, you you kind of alluded to it. That, I mean, the relationships between the, the U.S. and Russia isn't, isn't great, I would say. Like, has that ever been a factor? I think it's a factor in the overall suspicion. Um, there's there's mm. always suspicion of of Americans that come here. You know, you have to remember in the '90s there was sort of a wild grab for whatever assets were on offer. So there's there's definitely been issues where there's this perception that you're 
here to take advantage or that you can't be trusted. And we totally do it the other way with Russians as well in the U.S. Maybe not. We're getting more accepting in the sports world or in, in hockey. But there were some rough times, especially when the Russians first started coming over. I mean, Don Cherry right. was not too excited about them, for example. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, I think that there's there's an element of that. And some of that also plays into applying for visas, ease of moving around, all of that. Right is difficult, but it, it hasn't been insurmountable. Um, and I think speaking the language a bit and, and and developing relationships and being really careful with those relationships, even more so in Russia as an expat, has been key. All right. This last part is really going to be me nerding out because I'm, I don't know how much the listener cares, but I have this fascination with Tarasov, who, you know, I've, I've written a lot about coaches. Mm. And this is a guy I don't know if people in the U.S. or North America realize how influential he has been on the game and like you like I've been you know you search for his books and it's hard to get that information how do you have a lot of his books and and like how have you found that search for you and what have you learned about him so yeah getting getting your hands on his books for less than two hundred dollars for a really tattered copy is almost impossible yes. um I I secured his memoir for the second time, I had a copy of it when I was younger, and I think there were pages of it littered all over the Eastern Seaboard because it was falling apart. Um, <laughs> and now I finally have another one, and I've geeked out over it very hard. I also have The Road to the Olympics, um, but his memoir really is very moving when you read about how he came into coaching. You know, initially he was a soccer coach, and then he is tasked with creating hockey in Russia, essentially, in the right. Soviet Union. And they start out splitting their time between playing hockey with puck and hockey with ball. So half the time they were actually playing with a ball, which if you read anything or you, you hear any interviews with Wayne Gretzky, he spent a lot of time with a tennis ball out in his backyard and it helps with puck control. So I don't know if that was necessarily the intention, but they were they were learning two different styles of hockey at the same time. And what I find crazy about Tarasov is that when he was growing up as a coach, he had a mentor who said to him, you know, I don't want you going over to Canada to watch them play hockey. And Tarasov was really personally offended by this. He thought mm. that it was a vote of no confidence. But ultimately, what that mentor did was he gave us one of the greatest gifts we could have ever asked for, which is that he forced Tarasov to find his own rhythm, to find his own sound in hockey. And because of that, he developed a system and a style that was so different from anything we had ever seen. And now the hockey we play today is a hybrid of, of both sides stealing the best from one another. I'd say we've ventured more toward the North American side, of course, than the, the Soviet side. And sometimes I'm, I'm sad about that. But the fact that he was able to do that and to stoke the coals of his own creativity in those confines is really nothing short of remarkable, especially when you think about how dominant the Soviet team was for such a long time. And it's such an inspiration to anyone to kind of look inside first for, yeah. you know, there's, there's plenty of value to research. Don't get me wrong, but, but really looking inside and trying to figure something out on your own too, that's, that's a really special thing. And you, you bring just a whole new element to the world when you do that. Oh, that's great. So well said. I, I, when I had Scotty Bowman on, he talked to, I think he said he, he was. Oh, I'm so jealous. To, I'm dying to talk to know, Scotty. That That's was, cool. Oh, it was, he, he loves this topic. So I would, you absolutely have to, and I'll, you know, I, I can do anything I can to help you out there because he, I think, oh, I think you. he That'd would, awesome. he would love to, to get into this and you would ask much better questions about it than I would, but he had gloves that Tarasov gave him and it was like, oh, there was, there cool. seemed to be such a cool, like respect there for him among, you know, from the greatest coach in hockey history on this side of the pond. So 
Awesome. Well, I, I, thanks so much for the time. I mean, you're in the middle of a trip. You're you're over there working, and this was such a fun conversation and fascinating conversation. So thank you so much, Jillian, for well, doing thank this. Thank you for having me, Craig. It was such a pleasure, and and best of luck with everything on the NHL side. I'll be excited to come back and see how our our good old Igor Shostyorkin is doing over in New York. That's, that's been my focus <laughs> when I'm at home. <laughs> awesome. Well, enjoy the trip and safe travels. Thank you so much. Right. Great to chat I'll with you. It. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I want to thank Jillian for joining the podcast. I know she's busy. It's it's really hard when you're on the road and you're covering events. I'm guessing the last thing you want to do is like sit in your hotel for an hour and talk. But it was I'm so glad she carved out the time to do it. And I would really encourage you if you're not following Jillian on Twitter, I would really encourage it because it's it's this window to a world of that's kind of outside the, the norm of the NHL that that we see every day. So you can follow Jillian at Jillian Kemmerer. Um, as we speak right now, her pinned tweet is the Kirill Kaprizov Q&A that she did. But you can check out her work um, on the KHL website. So I would encourage you to, to do that as well. Some really good interviews there. And you can you can find most of them on her Twitter feed. So give Jillian a follow um, and, and definitely check out her work. And last thing before we wrap up, we've got already we've got three or four really good interviews lined up. I'm uh, Tyler is putting me through the paces over the next week. So I, I'm really excited about them. I'm really excited about what's to come in the next couple of weeks. So I just would encourage you, if you're not subscribing to The Athletic to get the ad-free version of this podcast, definitely do that. That's the best way to support the pod. Or just make sure you're subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is so you're getting those in your feed. All right, that's it. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Jillian for joining the podcast and have a great week.